Hi, everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott with my somewhat sultry voice after yelling and screaming at a wedding. (laughs) Dr. Shiloh, you're here too. What is going on with your voice? Oh, my God. It's almost matching yours. You and I both had very late nights last night, even though we are on opposite ends of the country. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And for some reason, you know, this was the the time that we could fit in to record, but it's better than not doing it. That's for sure. Yes. I am in my sister-in-law's closet, which is... It's a nice sounds, closet. It's huge. It is an, it's huge. She has a wonderful taste and lots <laughs> of room. And I have Tabitha the cat on my right shoulder supervising me tonight. So Tabitha will make sure this is a, an appropriate episode. That's adorable. So how you doing? You had a, you had a big night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after COVID, well, I know we're not past it, but you try to go do things to feel normal again. And people are crazy. <laughs> That's yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah, my sister and I went to a concert that we've been looking forward to forever at a really cool soccer stadium here in Los Angeles. Nice and open. Got some floor tickets so we could just stand away from each other if we wanted to or from the other crowd. It was wonderful. And as we were leaving, pulled out onto the street and some crazy person decided to hit me with their car. And then take off. So we were the victims of a hit and run last night. Oh, and, um, I didn't real, no, I didn't know yeah. that part. I didn't know that they ran off. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, not that there's a lot of places to like run to when you're driving around an event. I don't. I actually don't think he was at the event. He just kind of got stuck in the traffic that was pouring out from it. Right. But there's like so many cars. Where are you going to go, buddy? So we literally were able to get right in behind him, take down his plate. And then he did kind of make it to a street that was less crowded and just took off. So we pulled over and this is in the jurisdiction for the department that I work for. And a little embarrassing to call and say, hey, this is Dr. Shiloh. I need to make a report. <laughs> but the they were lovely and took care of me. And now I'm dealing with insurance stuff today. So yeah, victim of a crime last night, guys. I'm very sorry. You feeling okay? Yeah, I'm feeling fine. It, there's okay. no injuries and minor damage. My car's bruised, but she still looks okay. Oh, it's not totaled then, right? No. Oh, gosh, oh, no. Oh, great. Okay. Could you imagine gosh, me having that's... to get like towed back from Los Angeles? Yeah, that would God. be rough. Yeah. What a nightmare. Absolutely. And how about you? What did you do last night? I am in Alabama for the wedding of one of my amazing nieces, and it was an unbelievable sunset wedding at the top of a mountain at sunset and she is the daughter of my deceased brother and i was asked to stand in for my brother for the father-daughter dance which is i think the most unbelievable honor i get teared up just thinking about it and we just had a blast and of course she said can you choreograph something (laughs) So Aww. I got the lovely and talented, multi-talented triple threat, Deb Hyatt, a star of stage and screen, to choreograph something. We worked on it for a few weeks. We videotaped it, sent it to Cade. She practiced it on her end, and we just had a blast. Maybe if I'm brave enough, I might put it up on our page, but we, we had a and lot of fun. What song did you dance to? Isn't she lovely? And she Aww. absolutely is. She, she absolutely was stunning. Is. I saw the video. Beautiful. Yeah, that. could you believe that dress? That dress Aww. is like... I know. She, she said it was the third dress she tried on, and it was abs. I was like, okay, that's perfection. Yes. Well, people. Of course, are... I love all. I love all my nieces and nephews. I could wear gunny sacks, <laughs> and I think they were perfect. So, 
how nice that it, it, it was also a thing to sort of get back to normal. And I don't know if she has put off this wedding because of the pandemic. Yeah, back it was home put off, nice. but this was, this was very strict. You know, Huntsville is a really fascinating place and I'm really proud to be from here. And one of the things that's really amazing about it is that it has the highest per capita PhDs in the country. Right. Because we have NASA and space industry here. There's just a lot of super smart people, regardless of their political affiliation. And everybody was vaccinated. And it mm -hmm. was very clear on the invitation. It's like, if you're not vaccinated, you can't yeah. come. Of course, that's the honor system. And sure. you know, we're crossing our fingers. But like the wait staff, the band, everything had to commit nice. to the fact that they were vaccinated. So hopefully I feel quite confident that everything will be okay. We'll see in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, we'll know pretty clearly in two weeks. But hey, yeah. we have some business. You and I talked about some upcoming events that are very mm -hmm. exciting. You the new year. Yeah, yeah. We, we're kind of looking the end of this year is quickly approaching. So we're looking at, you know, what all we want to fit in there with well, first, you know, after this episode drops, Scott's going to be traveling back. So I'm still going to do Get Vocal on that will be the 20th. And I'm hoping to have a special guest on that is in a profession that we've talked about before and that a lot of our listeners want to know more about. And it's going to be a, a worker from Child Protection Services. Yes. And after we did our filicide episode, she reached out to us. And I think it would just be a great moment to have a Q&A with her, to have people be able to send in their questions or ask them live on Get Vocal. And then we'll, of course, release that on our Patreon feed for audio. And then it'll be up on YouTube eventually. But she and I are chatting later this week. And hopefully we can make that happen. So I will have a stand-in for you, Dr. Scott, while you're taking your safe travels back home. Aside from that, Patreon-wise, we are going to do another Patreon holiday Zoom party like we did last year. Hopefully, we can keep this up annually. We are deep into planning that right now. We'd love to do another watch party soon as well. So yes. we are going to figure out dates for that. And then after the first of the year, we would love to put together another walking tour with some of the friends that we made the last time we did it. And we Which are was, thinking... Yes, it was so popular. And yes, I'm still blown away by our tour guide. Such a talented man. I know. I know. So we will be chatting with him. And we think that we will do some sort of LA crime tour, but Hollywood specific. So... Yes. That would be a good little twist, something to change it up. Then people who joined last time can join again or new folks. We'd love to have you. We will give you plenty of notice about it and how to get in on that. So that should be fun. And it seems like you and I have decided to rip a page from the Hollywood headlines today for our topic. Well, look, I'm going to give you credit for the idea. This was a great idea. And it was, again, how many times have I said this? It took us in a direction that I was not really expecting that once again points to the complexity of psychological issues and trauma, treatment of trauma, experience of trauma, and how trauma is a phenomenon that is basically visualized as concentric circles, you mm -hmm. know, concentric and overlapping circles of experience and can impact so many people's lives. And right. I'm really excited about what we found today. 
Me as well. So, yeah. I mean, I'll just start out. Like, look, this last month and a half has presented pretty much a watershed moment in Hollywood production history, not just because of the death of Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust, but finally because of the intense scrutiny that that particular horrifying accident and incident has brought to this phenomenon. Lacks safety protocols on the sets of some movie and television productions. Yeah. So just as a quick recap, and I think we're going to get into it a little more in a bit, but most people are probably familiar with recently Alec Baldwin, who was producing and is the star of this pet passion project. It's a Western called Rust. Discharge what was supposed to be a quote-unquote cold gun, a non-live loaded weapon, during a rehearsal on the set. And from what we know, the gun had not been properly prepared or checked in the accepted and required procedures that are necessary to prevent injuries on set. Tragically, the discharge of the weapon resulted in the fatal wounding of Helena Hutchins. She's a Ukrainian-born American Film Institute graduate. And the single discharge of that weapon also resulted in the non-fatal injury of Russ director Joel Souza. Yeah, it's it's huge. It is sad. It is infuriating that this is not the first time that poor safety protocol compliance has resulted in the death of a cast and crew members of a production. We have a few brief examples of other terrible set deaths that could have been prevented, but also tended to kind of die in the press without a lot of change happening as a result. I think that Helena's tragic death actually is going to be a major turning point Same. in safety on sets. And, and as well, it should be, and I hope it is. But there have been way too many of these kind of events. And I wanted to share a, a section of them with, with our listeners. Yeah. So if you guys remember A Vampire in Brooklyn, it was a film starring Angela Bassett. And on November 3rd, 1994, while filming a scene, Angela Bassett's stunt double, 27-year-old Sonia Davis, died tragically when a 42-foot backwards fall stunt went horribly wrong. What makes this just heartaching beyond belief is that her mother and siblings were there to watch the nighttime shoot I, and she I died. I can't oh. even wrap my mind around that. Oh, could you imagine just the confusion? What is happening is, you know, I mean, we could go on and on, but yeah, it's just, what it's a terrible. horrible I mean, thing. That I don't think is very, that one is a great way to start because it's not very well known. Right. Probably the most well-known is the death of Brandon Lee, March 31st, 1993. Brandon Lee, the son of martial arts action superstar Bruce Lee, died on the set of the supernatural superhero thriller, The Crow. Now, what ostensibly should have been a safe and routine stunt gun scene went really badly. Yep. The Magnum 44 pistol that was used in the scene was supposed to be loaded with a single blank. And you know, we, we're going to be talking about blanks a lot today, so... Let's just make sure everybody understands. Blanks, blank bullets, they do discharge matter, mm -hmm. wadding or fragments of the construction materials for the blank. It's not supposed to be fired close to someone. It could still pierce someone's skin, but it's supposed to be non-lethal, certainly, but sure. still used in a very safe manner. On the set of The Crow, there was still a piece of an actual bullet lodged in the chamber from an earlier second unit use. Mm -hmm. So second unit, for just definition, it focuses on getting shots that may not require the primary actors or for getting what we call coverage. So additional perspectives, angles, things that can be shot to be edited 
added in that are necessary to the story. So the gun was fired off by Lee's co-star, Michael Massey, as planned and rehearsed, but the bullet fragment pierced Lee's stomach, severely injuring his abdominal aorta, and he died after many hours of effort by surgeons to address his wound. Yeah, I, I just heard more about this incident specifically of... It's a scene where a, like a number of people are pointing weapons at him for the scene, but the individuals that I heard interviewed about it say, you know, normally you can get the shot, you can get the angle with the person kind of putting the sights of their firearm just off kilter enough. So it's not really pointing at the person, right? Of course, depending on how close and all of that, but that was not done. And with the scene, Brandon was wired up with all of those little blood packets because he was supposed to be shot up. Yeah. Right, right. And afterwards, he expressed feeling pain. And then they were like, yeah, it's like almost being shot by a real gun. And then there's blood packets. So they couldn't even see the real blood. And then he gets taken to his trailer and I think was found in his shower. You know, he went to go like take a shower afterwards. And that's where he was found. Just brutal. Brutal. And obviously that one's coming up because of the similarity to the the situation on Rust, right? Um, Right. And they're not always weapons involved. I mean, in the movie version of the cult television show, The Twilight Zone. There was Twilight Zone, the movie. It was filmed in mm-hmm. 1983. That resulted in the death of actor Vic Morrow, who was had a long career in movies and television prior to that, as well as the death of child actors Micah Din Lee and Renee Sin Yi Chen, Vietnamese-born actors. Mm-hmm. So in that case, a pyrotechnic effect that was made to represent a mortar blast exploded too close to the helicopter. Now, why did it explode too close to the helicopter? Not because of the pyrotechnic expert, but because director John Landis had ordered the pilot to fly lower for the shot. The blast was placed exactly where it was supposed to be. It was correct. Uh And the pilot was very experienced, but the direction by Landis resulted in, I even hate saying this, resulted in the beheading of Vic Morrow and Mika Din Lee by a helicopter blade, as well as crushing Renee Sinyi Chen. Mm -hmm. Another actor on the set, Dick Peabody, has shared in interviews that Vic's last words in life while holding two children and waiting for the director to say action was, I've got to be crazy to do this shot. I should have asked for a double. Oh, geez. Oh. I know. I know. that We, we talk about that gut feeling a lot, right? Yeah. Man. Follow your gut. Yeah. Also, in 2014, on the set of the William Hurt movie Midnight Rider, 27-year-old camera assistant Sarah Jones was struck and killed by a train oh. while... She was placed too near to the tracks to be able to safely evacuate, essentially. So the incident resulted in her death and the injury of several other people, as well as, again, another horrific piece here. It was captured on film by the cruise cameras. So the star, William Hurt, had expressed concerns multiple times, reportedly, about the crew's ability to safely get off the narrow bridge tracks in time for the passing of the train and legal action was taken. And actually, director Randall Miller pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter as a result. Yeah, it's interesting to see which cases actually get adjudicated in charges. And the one that we're talking about with Rust, I mean, that is still developing as we speak about which charges are going to be coming up. 
Yeah. And then there was just going back again to the 80s, John Eric Hexum. He was an up and coming television actor in the 80s, died by an oh, accidental. I remember him. Yeah. Do you? <laughs> yeah. And Oof. an accidental self inflicted gunshot wound on the set of a TV show called Cover Up. This was in 1984. And the gun fired a blank cartridge, although the wadding material caused that fatal head injury to the actor. And he it, again, reports say that he had not been educated on the actual danger of guns with blank cartridges. And I know that's a big talking point. How much should the actors be trained in this? And how much do you rely on the armor? The scene he was shooting was basically not playing as the director desired, requiring delays and multiple retakes. And allegedly, Hexum became restless and impatient and sought to lighten the mood despite the delays. And he believed that he had an unloaded all but one blank in the gun and spun it in sort of simulating Russian roulette. He put the revolver to his right temple and pulled the trigger. He did not die immediately. They rushed him to the hospital. There was a really massive head wound, you know, shattering mm -hmm. his skull. I believe he lived for, I think, about a day in a coma. I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but it really shook Hollywood. And it, but again, like I was saying earlier, Shiloh, these are seminal moments in lax safety on set. And you would think that something would have been done. Yeah. I mean, in the 80s, I can understand how you have to have some kind of sound effect. And I do understand still that for some budgets of TV shows that CGI is expensive, but the only reason they actually use blanks is to show that flash of the muzzle fire. flash. Yeah. The muzzle flash. Yes, that's right. the term. But you know what? Maybe this will be what turns all of that around. It's like, you know, no more muzzle flash. We'll do it digitally. Right. Which I understand is the very difficult part to do. The muzzle flash plus the way that lighting is on the actor's face. It's so interesting. I think, you know, I, I was talking to your husband recently who's working on a film where he was telling me they have to go to the specific country to see what specific type of grass grows there to be able to recreate that in the CGI. Yeah. And the details that they get to is just astonishing. But how much do we need that? You know what I mean? Like for your average consumer and... I love your husband's work. It's beautiful. Am yeah. I going to know which grass is growing from the Sahara Desert? Probably not. It, does it matter if the flash, the muzzle flash on the actor's face is exactly what it would look like in real life? Eh, probably not. <laughs> but I, I think these are interesting concepts to think yeah. about moving forward with, you know, in, in the line of work that you and I do, when something goes wrong, there's definitely training and they take a look at training. How can training be different? How can it be better? Right. Policy is usually, you know, a piece of somebody screwing up somewhere and somebody getting hurt or dying from it. So I imagine it's like that in that industry as well. But I also think it's interesting how when we hear about people dying by firearm accidents like this in Hollywood, we have like this more intense reaction to it because people die in stunts like we've talked about and in other types of accidents way more often than using firearms. So the statistic I heard is that from about like mid-1980s, 85 or so, three people have died on movie sets due to guns, whereas a couple of dozen have died due to stunts. We just have a more intense reaction to death by firearms for whatever reason. That is a very interesting concept. I, I'm glad you found that because I had not made the sort of done the research in that area. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, we're remembering them more. But sure. I mean, the one thing that, that's the overarching concept is safety, right? Yes. 
Absolutely. Uh, and I... But we do have that more of a reaction when it's a gun. And maybe that's because of the political discourse around weapons these days. I, mean, it might I have to do with that. certainly think that's a piece of it. Okay. But I highly, highly recommend that everybody go listen to the most recent episode of the podcast with Deadly Force. It's episode 11. This is the podcast that my shooting instructors do. And they just had on two very experienced individuals, a property master and a film armor, and talked about all of this. And I mean, these people are like, ones that work with Clint Eastwood, John Wick movies, military history films, but they will give you an exact idea of the safety protocols in Hollywood. And it's also super interesting to hear about how safety, there's safety on the gun range. Like there's four universal safety rules. Oh yeah. When you talk about firearms training, like for law enforcement, military and civilians that want to go do that, there are four basic rules and we make it short so people remember them, but they're very important. And basically with those four rules, you are reducing the risk of an accidental shooting significantly. And these folks tell you about, there are like 70 rules on a set. However, things may differ. Like I would never hand somebody a gun with the safety off, but they do because of the shot, right? If they give an actor a gun and say, okay, do you know how to take the safety off before the scene? And the actor's like, oh yeah, sure. And then they could be spending tens of thousands of dollars for one shot, depending on the effects. And if that actor pulls a trigger and nothing happens because he forgot to take the safety off, <laughs> you just wasted a bunch of money. So it's so interesting to hear the different concepts of safety, yet there are people that take it incredibly seriously and are incredibly educated on it and are probably going to be advocating for more training all the way around. So I think you said something very important there in that last bullet point you offered is that the guests on the show were a very experienced property master and a film armor or mm -hmm. gun wrangler, as they sometimes call him. Emphasis on very experienced yes. because that's going to play a part in what we're talking about. So let me give a quick rundown of the timeline that exists up to what we know at the time of recording. So the players involved are Helena Hutchins. She was a cinematographer. You covered her. Total rising star in her profession, 42 years old. She had shot uh, movies like Arch Enemy and Blind Fire. And back in 2019, she was selected as one of the American cinematographers rising stars. She's a 2015 graduate of the American Film Institute here in Los Angeles. It's a very prestigious school. They don't accept everyone. It's an intense, intense program. And she was a, a young mom and married while she was doing this. So it was like she was even right. taking it on under even more pressure. Now, another player is Alec Baldwin. He's an actor and producer. Most people would recognize him from a lot of pictures. He's been around for decades. Very successful, long-running show, 30 Rock. He's, he's really a comedic genius. However, you know... He does have a history of domestic issues. He had an angry phone message to his daughter that went viral years ago after yeah. he left a really, really uh, not nice message. Yeah, it was pretty nasty. It was the language. Look, I understand that people get very angry with their family members, but it was really completely inappropriate on a lot of levels. So, you know, indications that there are some poor judgment there verging on what some people even call emotionally abusive. So mm -hmm. history does not necessarily, you know, the correlation is not causation, but I think that's interesting to look at, that he can have somewhat of a volatile personality. The first AD on Rust, which stands for Assistant Director, that was Dave Halls. And Mr. Halls has a history himself. It's documented that he was the subject of complaints for his behavior on set, as well as safety issues 
starting back in 2019. And in the follow-up interview with police, Halls confirmed that he did not make sure that all of the rounds in the gun that he handed to Baldwin had dummy bullets. And this is according to the current court documents. He told police when the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, presented him with the firearm, he could only remember seeing three rounds. And those would have been the dummy rounds for the blanks. And then we move on to another player who's very big in this is the armorer on set, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. She herself is from a family of very experienced armorers or gun wranglers for movies and television. Prior to this event, she had spoken openly about her concerns regarding her experience in this area, despite coming from a family. Mm -hmm. And I think the context of that is stepping into the placement where you are taking responsibility for a full production. So now this is not verified, this bullet point. I want to be very clear, this is not verified, but there's, and I had trouble, you know, there was allegedly an incident on her last project where she was responsible for providing an 11-year-old with a shotgun with a dummy round. And there was something going on where she was firing guns, not the child, but Hannah was Mm -hmm. firing the guns around the child in what was considered to be a haphazard way. And allegedly, Nick Cage went off on her for her reckless behavior. She has stated in interviews regarding the Rust incident that she has no idea how live rounds made it to the set, that she has no idea. As of this past Wednesday, Gutierrez Reed's attorney is asserting that she was framed in a setup for this event. That's a twist. That's the quote, that that's what her attorney is saying. She is not speaking. She's directing all correspondence to go through her attorney. Now, despite this assertion, the police records indicate that other live rounds had definitely been recovered from the set. Wow. And there were other set cast members saying that they had set up a shooting range in the area for Mm -hmm. people to get more experienced. Now, that is problematic in itself. Nothing wrong with a shooting range. Range, but that shooting range should not be in the same area as the set. Yeah, because now you're mixing contamination. Ammo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and definitely for it, because from what I understand, it was one round that essentially went through the first victim and then hit the second. That's definitely a live round. That that's not wadding or a blank. That, or that's not like a that. fragment. No, right? No, 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 no. So I've also heard of this concept, and I, I wanted to. Pick your brain about it just because you're connected in the industry still. How long has it been that really we've been starting to outsource productions to places other than California significantly? Like last 15 years? Longer it's, than it's that? longer than that. And look, and yeah, I, I again, that's a great point to bring up. So, <laughs> and this is no like, this is no criticism of other places developing their own film community. I, I'm not saying anything about that. I am just saying that, and this is something that my partner Dan and I have discussed, is that years ago when Disney moved into Orlando, they wanted to do their own productions there as well. So there was like this big buildup that Florida is the new Hollywood, or Orlando is the new right. Hollywood. And they even filmed some shows there. It, it did not take off. And then for the long term, and then there was also effort or a lot of production that was done in Texas. And then Texas was going to be the next Hollywood. And there are actually some really great Texas film directors that have come out of that, Mm -hmm. but it's not Hollywood. And then they were saying now it's going to be other sort of right-to-work states because everybody wants to go to the non-union states so that they can get. And now, of course, it's Atlanta. And a lot of things have been done in Atlanta. Tyler Perry has a wonderful, booming business there and gives a great boost to the economy. Dan worked on Hunger Games there. Right, The Walking Dead. But the reality is 
that I really think, I mean, I'm not speaking just for myself, I'm speaking for other professionals that we have discussed this incident, that the reason things like this happen is because they were done on a location, not you know, in Hollywood proper. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that like that's because I think The Crow was filmed in, here in Los Angeles. So it happened on the side of The Crow. But it's less likely to happen here because it's so strict and there's so many protocols that are followed. And that seems to be a big part of what happened here is that a lot of things broke down. So part of production. that is that it's my understanding that when a production goes out of state or away from Hollywood, that sometimes with budgeting restrictions, you're maybe not taking as many people as part of your team as you normally would. Right. And therefore, if we're talking 20 years, you might have a whole generation of specialists in different areas that are not trained properly, or you just kind of have a gap, you have kind of the old people doing it. And then you have like young up and coming people. And there's sort of this generation gap where they're not getting the proper experience or exposure or being able to go on as many shoots. I I had heard about that concept, whether or not it applies here. And we kind of talked about Hannah, like stepping into the the role that her parents did. But what has her experience really been like? And I don't know, I haven't looked her up and seen what it yeah, is. I don't, I don't know her I mean, stats seems, per se. It seems limited, but maybe that's what the budget could afford. And right. yeah, that's a I problem. don't know. I just think it's interesting. This is this is an interesting little uh, <laughs> analysis of Hollywood yeah. and the behind the scenes stuff that well, look, uh, here's, here's a great thing that makes it that actually makes it just as complex is that there's so much production going on right now. Like you can't even get a soundstage in Los Angeles. And that's wonderful. That means the economy is booming within an industry that is really integral to our economy here in Southern California. And it's booming in other states as well. Mm -hmm. That's not Mm -hmm. a bad thing. We love that people are being given the opportunity. But going back to what you were saying is that there's a finite amount of people that are available with the experience level that may be needed for that particular production. And you may not get the best costumers. You may not be able to get the best set decorators or set construction people, you're going to have to deal with a lot of locals. And, you know, some some areas with locals are better. I mean, I would say that Atlanta has now a solid infrastructure because mm-hmm. they've been doing this for a year and there are locals that work all the time because there's something always going on. Yeah. But okay. The problem is, is that as the industry expands, do you really have enough experienced people for to keep up with all the shows that Netflix is producing? Exactly. Whether or not they're made here, maybe they're shooting in the Ukraine or they're shooting in Slovenia or something, but you still have to take a big percentage of American crew. And then the American crew may have a completely different work culture as opposed to where they're going within the U.S. or outside the U.S. So very good Mm -hmm. point. Let's turn then to looking at what was going on here with these incidents on the set of Russ specifically. So prior to Hutchins' death, there had been escalating incidents on the set that occurred regarding travel time for the crew, pay rates on the low-budget film, and concerns expressed by the cast and the crew for their safety. The camera crew on Rust reportedly walked off the movie hours before the fatal shooting over poor work conditions. So you have, again, we were talking about causation and correlation But that had to be just so disruptive to everything, you know? Clearly. I mean, why are you starting to rehearse or film again within hours? I would think that would be so disruptive that you would need to 
call a day, regroup. So it was actually on October 21st that Alec Baldwin fired that gun while rehearsing that killed Hutchins. And on the next day, it was confirmed that the gun Baldwin was handed had a live round in it. So once the investigation is underway, this was confirmed through the investigation with communication with the prop masters union. Unions is a whole other thing too, right? I mean, you know, they're going to have a lot of power in what goes on as far as training and expectations in the future, I think. Following the weapon discharge, Baldwin fully cooperated with law enforcement. He ended up going down to the sheriff's office willingly, provided a statement to investigators and... Hutchins did not die right away. She was transported to the University of New Mexico to their hospital and was in critical condition for a period of time before she died. Sousa was treated at Christus St. Vincent Regional Medical Center, and he was released later that day. Following all of this, a statement via email from the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees gave the following. I'm going to quote it directly. A live single round was accidentally fired on the set by principal actor, hitting both the director of photography, local 600 member Helena Hutchins, and director Joel Sousa. A local 44 has confirmed that the props, set decorations, special effects, and construction departments were staffed by New Mexico crew members. There were no local 44 members on the call sheet. Very important regarding mm-hmm. what we were just talking about. So the local is the union, their particular union, just well, for folks yes, that aren't but, familiar with it. Right. So there were no there were no local, not geographic local, but local right. 44, like the like the L, yes, the LA residents. The following day, Baldwin tweeted, There are no words to convey my shock and sadness regarding the tragic accident that took the life of Helena Hutchins, a wife, mother, and deeply admired colleague of ours. I'm fully cooperating with the police investigation to address how this tragedy occurred. Now, an affidavit said that Baldwin was told that the gun was not loaded. Mm. Baldwin stated that he was told by the movie's assistant director that it was a quote-unquote cold gun. That's a term that's used when the gun is not loaded. The assistant director also handed him the gun. All of these elements that we keep repeating are very important. There's a clear transition that when charges are brought up, and there will be charges brought up, they're going to be absolutely hammering home who had possession of that gun at what time before it it got into Baldwin's hand. Sounds as if there was a bit of a protocol here, which I don't know the norm for this, but maybe the armorer is then having the assistant director check it, and then the assistant director's handing him the gun? I don't understand that. I don't understand that. But then again, maybe that's maybe that is typical protocol. And by the time we're able to discuss this in a couple of weeks on Get Vocal, we'll have more information. But that seems I mean, maybe it was set up as a protocol for like a safety like um, or a a fail safe of like, we're going to check it once. We're going to check it twice. I mean, that's not a bad thing, too. I just wouldn't think that like, why would you have but who knows, maybe someone would be able to explain. You don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. From what I understand with the armors that work, these big case, the big, big cases, these big film sets, it is like handoff film. And the second it's cut, they're in there grabbing it, you know, from the person. So why do you want a number of people touching it? If you want to gather the actor that's going to be holding the gun and the assistant director and the people he's going to be pointing it at and say, hey, everyone, look, we're doing a chamber check. We're looking at it. This is the status of it. Great. Then everyone can kind of be in on that. But really to be led by one person from what I understand is going to reduce accidents. 
So following up to what you're saying, Shiloh, there are reports by the Daily Beast about that movie starring the young actress who is 11 years old, not nine. I'm so sorry. I gave the wrong information mm-hmm. earlier. The movie was called The Old Way. Nicolas Cage is in this movie. There was an unnamed source for Daily Beast that was quoted as saying she was a bit careless with the guns, waving it around every now and again. There were a couple of times she was loading the blanks and doing it in a fashion that we thought was unsafe. Oh, I know. I had the same reaction. Yeah. I had the same reaction. Especially if if lay if lay people are nervous <laughs> around like of how the professional is handling a firearm, that's huge because well, that... absolutely because they're supposed to be the ones instilling confidence in you. Like, hey, absolutely, don't be afraid of the guns. And and Hannah Gutierrez in, in her other interviews has been quoted as like, I want people to understand how normal it is to use firearms, which is the way you're trained when you're on a firing range. So I respect uh, that attitude. I'm going to slightly disagree with okay. what she's saying there in that you need to be healthily afraid of a firearm. And perfectly stated. Again, going back to my shooting instructor, the one and only Scotty Reitz, he says the most dangerous person on this range is him. Because he is handling firearms all day, every day. We're just looking at percentages. He's the most dangerous person. And he, I would trust with a billion firearms standing next to me. (laughs) So, you know, to say that like, you have to kind of be normal around them. No, you have to respect them. You have to honor them and what they're capable of. And I can tell you, if you go to a, a, a real shooting class and you are being taught and shooting and going through your firing exercises, it is so mentally draining by the end of the day because you have to be locked on. There is no wiggle room for anything less. I mean, really, your head is in it. You would be surprised how mentally draining it is to be in a firearms course. You know, you think the physicality of it, which of course, yes, but go spend six, seven, eight hours on a range and everybody should feel like that at the end of the day because then you know they were paying attention and intensely tuned in to their safety and everyone else's. So it's, again, like some of these things are unverified. Some of these things are kind of third party from, you know, perhaps how she was acting on sets. But I'm saying for anyone, you know, if if anyone listening here is in the industry and there's some sort of technology or weapon on a set and you're fearful or uncomfortable with how it's being treated, say something. That's what active bystandership is. We need to be able to call each other out on that stuff. And maybe there's a little bit of education. Maybe there's a little bit of explaining of like why that's okay. But if you're uncomfortable, call them out on it. I mean, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. So... Sorry, I get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, I'm glad you do. I, I love when you pull out your soapbox. It knocks me off mine a little bit, which is perfect. <laughs> if you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place. And it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. But we want to move on to the two major site concepts yep. involved in these, which is unintentional killing and moral injury. Yeah, because that's what we're all talking about here is there is this horrific incident that happened and 
it's natural for us to want to think about the people who are injured and the people who died and their families. But there are way more individuals involved here who have suffered trauma. So unintentional killing, let me just back up a second here. All deaths of a human caused by another human is considered homicide. So that word is just when one human kills another. But an unintentional killing, by definition, is committed by people who did not foresee the consequences of their actions. So there may be no charges filed because there was no neglect or criminal act. And Scott's going to talk about manslaughter later. And the actual charges that a prosecuting attorney could seek would depend on those circumstances and the events leading up to the death, as well as the state's case and the elements of the crime that that prosecuting attorney believes they'll be able to prove at trial. However, when an unintentional killing reaches the criminal justice system, they don't contain a high amount of malice because they're not planned by definition, right? They're unintentional. We can say accidental. There's a lot of legal definitions here and kind of lay definitions that we're talking about, but unintentional meaning usually it's it's an accident of some sort where the person did not intend, obviously, to kill somebody else. And from their understanding, all safety precautions were taken to make sure that that didn't happen. And that's not just in the scenario we're talking about. I'll, I'll run through some others that I remember too. But do you want to tell us more about moral injury off the top? Right, because these two things, especially you know, in unintentional killing and leading to moral injury are these intertwined concepts. I mean, besides the inevitable shock of an unintended death and unintentionally causing a death, the position of the responsibility for the individual in like someone in Baldwin's place could result in what we call a moral injury. And moral injury is the term that we use for when individuals experience a traumatic level of guilt when their actions and their behaviors fail to live up to their moral expectations. So there's a little bit of an equation there. And since 2009, Brett Litz and colleagues have described the state as, and this is a quote, perpetuating, failing to prevent, or bearing witness to acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations may be delirious in the long term, emotionally, psychologically, behaviorally, spiritually, and socially. So going even deeper, Liz asserts that the term moral injury has been developed in response to the actual inadequacy of the mental health diagnosis process. And he's primarily referring to PTSD to encapsulate the moral anguish that service members were experiencing after returning home from war. So the soldiers coming home and then having to deal with what they actually were required to do as part of their role as soldiers. Or or not what they're not able to do. You know, when they're driving through a town, a war-torn town that has been bombed and there's a child on the side of the road missing an arm... And the paramedic is not allowed to get out and go render aid to that child. They have to just keep driving through. That's the conflict, right? We should be here helping and saving everyone as much as we can. But we also have a mission. And talk about PTSD. I mean, gosh, that that built up incident after incident. That's exactly what you're talking about here. Yes. And thank you for that, for pointing that out. Look, unlike PTSD, which focuses on fear-related symptoms, moral injury fixates on the specific and significant symptoms that are related to guilt, shame, anger, and disgust. But it's also really important to remember that the shame that many individuals face 
as a result of moral injury may very well predict the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, like a lot of symptomology within actual diagnoses, symptoms can vary from individual to individual, but generally are described as grief, guilt, remorse, shame, outrage, and despair. So the individual can lose trust in themselves and their moral foundations. So, of course, this is going to have really far-reaching implications, including interpersonal relationships, which could easily be negatively impacted because they now feel that they can't trust others not to judge them. And so one of the ways that they may deal with it is in a very unhealthy way. They start to isolate. They may begin to self-medicate their inner pain with alcohol or drugs, and they can chafe from the responsibility and expectations of societal norms, you know, within the attempts at interpersonal relationships and maintaining family relationships and start to erupt in anger at what would otherwise be really innocuous triggers. So here's a great quote about it. Most human beings aren't wired to intentionally harm or kill others. So when it happens accidentally, our instinct is to feel guilt, shame, and self-condemnation. And that is according to Elaine Miller-Karras. She's the co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute. So in another interview, she continues, not an easy road because somebody that was beloved is now dead because of something you did, not with intention. And that not only affects you in terms of taking a life. Mm -hmm. And she is writing, they asked her, you know, she's writing about the death of Helena Hutchins. And she uses this as an example of what the ripple effect of who this is going to impact. It's going to impact her child, her parents, her husband, the cast and crew members, everything. That death is going to affect so many people. So for the person whose actions caused this death, in this case, Alec Baldwin, it's not just oh my gosh, I killed somebody and that he took this one person's life away. But now he has to think about, which from what I understand, he's been in contact with her family and she was a friend, but all of her all of her family members and how do you face those people? So, wow. You know, I, I have also heard that moral injury is also one of those very specific results of trauma that people start questioning their own spirituality after something like this. You know, we do see that with with PTSD and exposure to trauma. And usually a third of people actually will get deeper into their faith or hold that as a stronger component of their social support system and their coping. Some people start questioning, right? Like, how could God let this happen if, you know, maybe a a Christian religious faith-based spirituality? Because of that conflict of the morals and what happened. And if there is no thing to point out and say, this is how it went wrong, sometimes, can you imagine just the the people that you're left with? There's no resolve to that. It doesn't make sense. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it gets more complex the more you try and break it down. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that despite the fact that the individual that's going to be involved in committing the unintentional death Despite that they're going to be likely traumatized, unintentional killers may not actively seek out support. They might not look for help through mental health services. And that can stem from the fear that they themselves believe that their feelings about the event are invalid because 
those feelings are secondary to the trauma that has caused the loss to someone else, right? Right. We don't really talk about these because we usually talk about intentional perpetrators. But when we mm-hmm. make it this unintentional perpetrator, this unintentional event, it really changed the whole dynamic of the emotional processing. The perpetrator, and I am, I'm kind of uncomfortable using the word perpetrator because there's not intent there. They can judge their own emotional state. They can feel that they're being selfish. And they can even go so far as to consider that their feelings would be interpreted by the world as attention-seeking or an attempt to garner sympathy. And this is so related to what we talk about, that issue of how people are perceived in court and how judges can make judgments and statements about you've shown no remorse during the process of this trial. Right. It's like, well, you know, you're worn out. You're like you, that person's been in, in the courtroom for eight weeks. They're worn out. Or a woman cries too much and everybody says, oh, she's faking. She's being dramatic. You know, it, this yeah. is another one of those examples, I think, except that it's internalized by the person who committed the unintentional killing. Look, this is a great way to tie this up. All of trauma needs to be legitimized. You know, the area of unintentional killings is really poorly researched because like you showed, there's not a lot to work with. And it looks like there's about 30,000 individuals within the U.S. that have engaged in unintentional killings each year. That's mm-hmm. a lot. It is. But it is. When we've been talking about, you gave stats that are statistically about within the entertainment industry with right. the guns versus the stunts. But clearly it is happening. What if you were an unintentionally you know, you're driving down a road and you're being safe, but someone careens into your car on a yep. skateboard or a bike or or another car or, you know, these kind of things can happen. This is the same kind of processing and moral injury and trauma that the, a person can experience. There's a social psychologist, Marianne Gray, and she's one of the very few specialists in this area. She's formed an organization called Accidental Impacts, and she has a real investment in this because in 1977, she accidentally hit an eight-year-old boy who had run in front of her car. It was in a rural area. She was driving safely and appropriately. And it, you know, just unfortunately it happened. This poor kid was playing and maybe not looking where he was running. This experience, according to her, traumatized her, leaving her with what she continues to describe as, and this is a quote, grief, guilt, shame, and anguish. And she has a quote here that's a bit challenging for me, although I understand what she's saying. I think that certain situations are more complex, but I'm going to quote her. We have enough compassion in our hearts that we can not only mourn for Helena, but also recognize the suffering and despair that Baldwin may well be experiencing. We can acknowledge great harm has been done and we can hold people accountable, yet we can also recognize he didn't intend harm and he may be suffering from psychological despair. Look, I get it. I totally get what she's saying. But also as an outside observer, it's difficult to fully embrace that attitude when there are indications that the safety protocols were possibly not being respected, especially to the extent that a significant number of people had walked off the set like you were telling. Yeah. Yeah, I I 100% buy into what she's saying because aside from all of the the safety protocols or issues going on, I can absolutely recognize that Alec Baldwin is suffering intensely. Yes, absolutely. It's a great dialectic to think about again, to sit in and say, it's not this or that. It is both. You know, when I hear about, you were talking about the car accidents, I think of the other times that we've heard about these with celebrities. Do you remember when Caitlyn Jenner got in that car accident on PCH in Malibu? I completely forgot about that. Every time I drive that strip of PCH, I think about that because I hate that highway. But, you know, there's something about... 
but she's not the only one, right? No. I mean, that's, this is, there, you had other examples. Yeah, there was the singer Brandy. She was involved in a one of those freeway pileups where there were multiple people, you know, rear-ending each other on a freeway. And her SUV hit the car in front of her like several did in the chain. But there was a child in the backseat of that car and that oh child died. Howard Hughes hit a pedestrian with his car. There's a lot. And I, am, I just tried to pick out ones where there were no charges filed, where it would truly was seem to be as much of an accident as possible and not like a DUI or you know somebody texting or something like that. But we hear about those from time to time. And as you and I were talking about this topic, when we first thought of it, it's terrifying because it normalizes it in a sense where it could kind of be any of us. And I think that's the scary thing about car accidents is that, you know, it's something we all do. We all drive and we're relying on other people around us so much. I remember anyway. there's another example. And now that you got me thinking in terms of car accidents, actress Rebecca Gayhart yes. had unfortunately hit a child in an area that is notoriously tough to navigate during rush hour. It's a oh major thoroughfare through LA. It's a but it's a residential street mm-hmm. that people use getting on the north-south axis. And there's always it's not really a wide street, but people travel it at a high rate of speed and there are cars parked densely on either side. Uh, and this child just ran out in front of her car. Very, very yeah. sad and traumatized her extremely. I mean, there were, yes. I believe she gave a couple of interviews about what the experience was for her and how it's had long pa- long-term impact on her mental health. Yeah, I remember that. I, I also show a video when I do some talks on law enforcement suicide. And it's of an officer who is, you know, he he's in some other state on some long country road. It's dark, it's pitch black. And you actually, you can see the camera footage from his car out of nowhere, absolutely nowhere. This child on a bicycle right in front of his car. And he hits this child. It shows, we have the the footage, you know, he flips his car around to go back to the scene and is just, the child's now on the side of the road and he's just doubled over in anguish. And in that moment, he says that he was suicidal. You know, just because of this thing that had happened, he literally was thinking, I cannot live with myself for what I just did, even though it was completely unplanned and completely an accident. He he survives. He did not take his own life, but we use it because it's really powerful. You can hear him when he gets back into the car from his camera audio. You hear like this clicking sound when he's calling up his sergeant to radio in what had happened. And later we find out he was actually removing all the bullets from his gun because that quickly, he said he didn't even trust himself with his gun. He was going to take his own life. Well, um, you're describing this individual being doubled over in mm-hmm. you know immense instant grief that that image was captured of Alec Baldwin right, as well right. immediately after the event. Yes. And he is, you see that he is a broken man yeah. after this when he realizes what has happened. I mean, Ugh. just completely, completely dissolves there. And I think it's so brutal, interesting how you're talking about that, you know, there's such a stigma and such a uniqueness to this incident that people don't seek out help. And I love that this mental health professional started the group Accidental Impacts. It serves as 
as a, a peer support group. So it's led by mental health professionals, but also peer support led. And they refer to themselves as caddies. So caused accidental death or injury. It, it's a place for people to come together to to support each other through this horrific trauma, which is very unique. We will put up the link to that on the yeah. website. And I was not even aware that something like this existed. So please, all of you listening, you know, I, I know that this is a rare occurrence, but that makes it even more important for people to understand that an organization like this exists because it's so rare. It's not like a, a common event where you even know what to Google for support. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great way to put it. Um, you think it would be helpful if I talked about PTSD a little bit just to give the broad overview? And Yes. I mean, we've, we have gone in a deep dive on other episodes, but can you refresh kind of the basic bullet points? I think that would be helpful. Yeah, definitely. And just as you and I were on uh, Military Murder recently with the lovely Mama Margot, and we started this conversation about PTSD by also saying, you know, people who suffer from trauma in this way and who have this diagnosis may prefer the term just post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I just want to honor that and and put that out there because we think of it clinically and what it's called in the DSM and what the criteria are. But I know there's some nuance to that and there's a lot of emotion behind that and that the term disorder can seem very stigmatizing. Yes. In an area that we already, especially we talk about law enforcement, military, that it's stigmatized so much that we're very open to talking about it differently to get people help when they need it. So, but for purposes of of today, uh, we've of course have already referred to it as just PTSD or post traumatic stress disorder. And there's really three criteria to say whether or not somebody could be diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder. Bullet point number one is that you have to have been exposed to, to a traumatic event, and a traumatic event that we're defining in this sense is that it either caused great bodily injury or death, or there was the threat of that. So you can also experience it yourself or witness it. That could be somebody points a gun at me. So I am feeling threatened, yet it the gun was not fired. It did not injure me or kill me, but the potential was enough. Or you could witness a horrific car accident involving someone else. And that injury or death to that person, even though your life wasn't threatened, still falls under this, this first category umbrella of what needs to happen for us to say, okay, yeah, let's let's look at the symptoms and, and how you reacted to see if we're going down the path of PTSD here. Second bullet point is that after you have experienced this traumatic event, that your reaction has to be one of intense fear, horror, or helplessness. So when I was talking about maybe a military service member feeling so helpless and not being able to help an injured child in a place that they know they probably won't get the proper treatment, that's what I mean with intense helplessness. Fear is probably the most common. Your People are fearing for their life or fearing for someone else's life. Or horror, I think of really graphic crime scenes perhaps that someone has seen, you know, that's going to evoke that emotion of horror. So once you have those two things on board, then we start looking at symptoms. So if you and I were to do an assessment for someone that comes into our office that had a traumatic event happen, they responded with intense fear, we would then talk to them about what symptomology is presenting for them. And all of these symptoms within the first few weeks 
are 100% natural and normal for somebody to feel after this event. And people are going to have basically a little variety platter, (laughs) their own variety platter of symptoms. They might not have every single one. They might have a few from one category, a few from another. It's just going to depend. And that's the thing with trauma and PTSD is that so much depends on that person's experience, their previous trauma, the way in which they handle stress. All of that can culminate to how are you going to deal with this one thing? And I don't mean deal with it in like a conscious way, but how is your body and your brain chemistry prepared for this traumatic event? So when we look at the symptoms, those also fall into a few categories. One category, which I find is definitely the most common, is re-experiencing the event. So this is your flashbacks. This is thinking about it when... You're not trying to think about it. We also call it waking recollections. That's probably the... If you think of this as a spectrum, that's going to be the most common for a traumatic event, but not the most serious. The other end of that spectrum would be full-on flashbacks. Like we think about Vietnam vets. Once they hear a car backfire, you know, they're ducking down. So there's definitely a big spectrum here depending on how much trauma you were exposed to. Last night, after, I mean, my accident wasn't a big deal as far as injuries or, you know, severity of it. I couldn't sleep. By the time I got home, I just kept thinking about what happened. Now, it wasn't a traumatic event. I'm not going through criteria here for PTSD, but just an example of that scenario playing over and over in your mind and keeping you from sleeping or thinking about other things. Re-experiencing can also trickle into people's subconscious and dreaming about the event, sometimes some serious nightmares where people are having physiological reactions. But this is really the most common. It's just it's, it's playing over and over again for that person for a few days or a number of weeks. The second category is hypervigilance. So this is a direct result of the fight or flight situation that is happening during the traumatic event. However, it takes a little time to balance out. Those chemicals in your body and in your brain need time to readjust back to baseline. So that can take some days for people. And the result of this is that you just feel on edge. You feel like you are in fear for your safety, even though you're completely rational about the situation. You know, I'm home, I'm safe now. I'm with people who will keep me safe. The car accident's over or the violent incident is over. I'm good, but those chemicals have not balanced out yet. So they're still firing. You know, we have some that are on overdrive in fight or flight. We have some that are shut down and they just need to to come back to, to their normal baseline. So hypervigilance is something that people explain feeling as well. And then we have avoidance. So this can be avoiding wanting to talk about the incident, especially when you've told it a million times because you have people usually asking you about it. But it can also be just the natural instinct to avoid triggers that remind you of the incident. People, places, things, situations that are similar. It could be visual reminders. It could be not driving down the street where that thing happened. I think we all can probably relate to this a little bit. Maybe it's not an exact traumatic event, but where something bad happened, you just don't really want to go back there and be reminded of it. And that's natural. That's our body's instinct saying, okay, feels uncomfortable. Don't need anxiety right now. I'm going to lower that as much as possible. And so we tend to then avoid those things. And then a recent addition, additional category um, in the DSM-5 is just that 
there's some negative change in the way that you experience the world, the way that you think, the way that you feel. I feel like this is sort of a no kidding (laughs) item. I don't know if they needed to add this in there. I think at least temporarily people feel that way. But if it sticks around long enough, that's when it can be problematic. So if if you're not moving into post-traumatic growth, then you could be stuck. And that's when we look at PTSD, we look at these symptoms. And if they stick around for longer than a month, that's when we want to make sure you get support. You have somebody to help you kind of move through and process this a little bit better. You probably just need a little bit of help be- because you're stuck in the processing phase of all of this. I love that you said that last bullet point because that to me sounds like the issues of the moral injury where you start to lose trust in the faith of opinion of others yeah. that you've previously had. Suddenly it's like, well, how how can I trust them to have any kind of real positive opinion about me if I've done this awful thing? Or that just seems sort of similar or parallel. How do I trust people if I trusted people to give me a gun that wouldn't kill anybody? How do you just trust uh, people yeah. in general anymore? <laughs> I mean, this is this could be very long standing. I mean, this yeah, I I do, you know, I felt like this was something that didn't necessarily have to be said. I think it kind of went hand in hand with PTSD, but it's a great example of exactly what you're talking about with moral injury. Again, it, all of these natural and normal for someone to to feel after an abnormal event, right? But I would say the symptoms usually subside around the three week mark. People are generally pretty good. We are we're very resilient people. Yes. Humans are, and majority of people will experience a traumatic event in their life, but not everybody. A very low percentage will go on to develop post traumatic stress disorder. You know, this could be also cumulative. It just doesn't have to be one event. Like we talked about somebody with several incidents of trauma in their background, perhaps, or several combat missions and military. We call that complex trauma. It's very, very complex because it could be a trauma sparks all of these symptoms that isn't even as quote unquote, like a big deal as the first three traumas that came. But it's just something Mm -hmm. about the accumulation that breaks those symptoms to the surface. Well, thank you for... I mean, that is... It's interesting. We try and keep it brief. And that is brief compared (laughs) to how incredibly profound PTSD and PTSS Mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's important. And I think especially at this time in our narrative today, to go back to that, to make sure that we're framing this appropriately for the people that are in the position of being unintentional killers. Or think about or, everybody mm. in the cast and crew that watched this happen, right? So they are yeah. all they all have that first criteria, number one. So yeah. they could Absolutely. be on the path to this. So when we talk about what kind of charges that could come up, certainly we're not right there where it's all going down. There's a lot of things that could happen, but the most common one, I'm not saying the most likely mm-hmm. one, but the most common one in this situation for an unintended perpetration of a killing would be manslaughter. So I think that the legal issues in this case regarding manslaughter, we're going to frame it from what we know on this date that we're recording from our current perspective. So the definition of manslaughter is the crime of killing a human being without malice, without a forethought, or otherwise in circumstances not amounting to murder. So manslaughter in the United States is viewed in three types of unlawful killings. The first There is voluntary manslaughter, 
and this is where it's like, it gets a little dicey about how which part of the Venn diagram it falls in, is voluntary manslaughter is an intentional homicide committed in sudden heat or passion, quote unquote, as the result of what has to be perceived by the system or the charge as a quote unquote adequate provocation. That's not applying to this at all. The second one, though, the second consideration for a charge of manslaughter is the involuntary manslaughter, which is also an unintentional homicide that was committed in a manner that is considered to be criminally negligent. Mm -hmm. That definitely seems like that would be a possibility here. And then lastly, there's an involuntary manslaughter that's an unintentional homicide that occurred during the commission or attempted commission of an unlawful act which does not amount to a felony. And usually in this case, the charge is then bumped up because of the triggering of the felony murder rule. Yeah. So that's just the thing that I thought came up. It's it's possible that, it's certainly possible that charges wouldn't be brought. I, I don't know if that will happen or not. I will say that as of just two hours ago, downloading the most recent feeds on this incident, mm-hmm. there are many other lawsuits that are now being generated from other people on the set. And some of those may be, I I won't even speak on those, but we haven't heard the last of this case. It's going to continue to develop. No, it could definitely have a life in the civil suit world. I mean, even having to do with, you know, her death. So yeah, we'll see where it goes. Definitely. You know, I was consulting with another true crime podcaster who was working on some cases in their research where there were traffic accidents where somebody as a result died. And they were asking me, how can there be no charges filed in any of these? And I think it's just a good demonstration of just how it doesn't sit well with us. If it is truly an accident and there is no negligence and no, you know, sometimes even fault of the victim, it's just an accident. And people might not be held responsible for the death of that person. And that's the question. Should they? If they couldn't even predict that this was going to happen or take action to stop it. But it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't sit well with us. (laughs) It doesn't. But I'm so glad that you pointed that out. That is a really great point is that this is the horrific distress tolerance that everybody has Mm -hmm. to sit in and a lot of people are not. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that if I was a family member, you know, if I could think of like someone that unintentionally killed my husband, who is I've been with for decades, how would I feel about that? I'm not sure I would be thinking in the most reasonable manner. I would want an eye for an eye. Right. Hopefully I would respond better, but I can understand, you know, you're talking about this and shining light on that. It is an ever more complex issue. Mm that not everybody is going to see very clearly. It's unintentional. It was an accident. And we live in a world right now where people are so triggered and spun out by the complexities and the challenges of the world that we've had over the past couple of years that we're reactive. And when you come from a reactive place, you aren't always thinking clearly. So thank you so much for tying it up like that. I, I do want us for the end of this episode to make sure that we really do honor the the victim in this. I mean, although there are many victims, it did result in the loss of life of Helena Hutchins, who was just on the precipice of an even more amazing life than she had already created. And I think it's a good thing for us to, yeah, you know, give a memorial for her. Let's do that. Hutchins grew up on a remote Soviet military base. I just think, you know, middle of nowhere, 
<laughs> tons of snow. <laughs> uh, thinking like, this is where this woman grew up. Wow. And then she received a graduate degree in international journalism from Kiev National University in the Ukraine. Prior to coming to the U.S., she worked in Eastern Europe on British documentary productions and films. When she arrived at the U.S., she started as a production assistant while also immersing herself in fashion photography so that she could learn more about what she called the aesthetics of lighting in an effort to sharpen her skills and creating specific moods used in capturing them on film. Very neat. In 2013, she was accepted into a two-year program at the AFI Conservatory. She graduated in 2015 after completing the grueling two-year intensive program as the cinematography student. The publisher of American Cinematographer magazine, Stephen Pizzillo, said that Helena had not only a joyful spirit, but a strong sense of how to network in the movie business. Pizzillo knew her family closely and considered her a dear friend. Another cinematographer, Andre Semenyuk, remembered how she welcomed him when he came to the United States and made an effort to include him in some of her assignments. Semenyuk considered her a mentor who stood out for her willingness to help others. He's quoted as saying, in the film industry, which is super competitive, it's not enough to have talent. It's good to have this human appealing personality. Helena Hutchins is survived by her husband, Matthew Hutchins, with whom she had a son. So, you guys, thanks for sticking with us today. I think this is such a, a current and fascinating issue to be discussing. And definitely, although this week's Get Vocal will be on another subject, mm -hmm. we will definitely want to circle around because in probably two weeks, next time we're scheduling one, I'm sure there will be more developments on this story. Right. So if you have questions and you want to dip in or send us emails about particular aspects of psych issues involved in this, we will try and cover that as well as whatever else develops. Yeah, absolutely. We just want everybody to be safe in whatever your industry is. So yes. it was very eye-opening to kind of peel back some layers in this specific area that you have great experience with and that we don't talk about too much. You know, we talk about the depictions of some of these psych disorders that we see in entertainment, but it was neat to to kind of look at what's going on with something that's very fresh in the news, which is, you know, you guys know that's not really our style, but we can pass this up and talking about these unique concepts. Yes, I think one of the ways that we were able to jump into something that was so current is that it doesn't seem that the mental health issues of the individuals involved in this were particular to the commission of the event. There we go. Yeah. If it had been, that would have been something that we definitely, we will always take a step back on. But what is great to illustrate here is that trauma can come in many forms and it affects many people not only, and I, like again, I hate seeing the word perpetrator, but an unintentional killing can really have ripple effects on everyone involved. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Let's keep talking about. Yep. It. All right. Thank you, Doctor Scott. Good to see you. Thank you, Doctor Scott. Thank, thanks, guys, for bearing with us. I, being across the country, we're not sure how the audio quality is going to be, but we know our magical editor will make it as good as possible. Yes, I think we're okay. <laughs> you might have heard a, a cat clang. I, I tried to mute it when the cat was bumping <laughs> my leg looking for food. But we'll see what happens. Yes. All right, everyone. We will catch you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. 
sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.